I'm Jewish. I'm so Jewish. I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. A lot of people say, I'm Jewish, I'm proud of being Jewish. First thing I ask them is, why? I'm Jewish. Make something of it. All right, this is number one. It's going all the way back to about 2004 with Rabbi Harold Schulweis, Zecher Tzadik Livracha. He was brilliant and fearless. Uh, I'm Rabbi Schulweis. I am the uh, senior rabbi of Valley Bet Shalom, a conservative congregation in the valley. And uh, it's comprised of some 1,600, 1,650 families. Uh, interesting people. It's an interesting congregation, if I say so myself, because the people are very responsive to whatever is, uh, is, is spoken of. My other uh, identifications are, um, uh, I am founder of an organization called the Jewish Foundation for the Rescuers, which I'm very proud of. We, have, we raise money and distribute money to Christians who risked their lives during the Holocaust to save Jews. Uh, there are approximately now some 1,400 in all the countries where the Nazis penetrated and they're remarkable human beings. And uh, it, it's the, the motivation for that is hakarat hatov, which means the recognition of goodness. And uh, every year we meet at a uh, dinner. We raise approximately a million dollars uh, by guests who are both Jews and non-Jews. And we distribute this money uh, to those people who are in obviously uh, older, but we also unite the rescuer and the rescued at that dinner. And it's the most poignant, most moving event. These people have not seen each other for 40, 50 years. And uh, it is one of the, the great secrets of our time. The fact that there exists such people in Bulgaria where 50,000 Jews were saved because of the efforts of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. So I'm very proud of that. And I, I, I'm a writer. I write uh, uh, books of general but mostly Jewish interest. Uh, most recently, uh, a book called In God's Mirror, which are a selection of, uh, is a selection of uh, um, reflections and essays. Uh, one before that, For Those Who Can't Believe, which is also a theological um, effort to understand the, the Jew who has a difficulty believing. These are the agnostics, these are the atheists, and these are really the Jews who are in the synagogue too, but who have not, and, and may sometimes express an uneasiness about prayer, miracles, God, evil, um, and we try to give a response to that. But I think most recently I have done some works in, in prose poetry, which I find to be very interesting and different for me and for the people. Uh, most recently there's a, uh, a book that I've written called uh, When You Lie Down and When You Rise Up. And this is basically a nightstand book uh, that you recite a meditation.
an original meditation based upon Talmudic, Midrashic uh, folklore, but will help you go to sleep because I'm an insomniac and I, I, I need this. And one, and one section that deals with rising, uh, a meditation that prepares you to counter uh, the world itself. So uh, I think those are the things that I uh, am most involved with. I was born with a pluralistic situation. My father was a um, socialist, Zionist, Yiddishist, anti-synagogue, anti-religion-like rabbis, very much. Which is one of the ways in which I resolved my Oedipal conflicts by becoming a rabbi. My grandfather, on the other hand, my mother's father, was an orthodox uh, layperson, but a great Talmudist, and who weaned me away from the Yiddishist schools that I was going to and saw to it that I went to yeshiva. So I went to a yeshiva um, rather late, considering when people go to yeshiva these days. Um, Yisrael Salanter Yeshiva in the Bronx. And uh, I was really taken by this, taken by the teachers, by the seriousness, and went there thereafter to Yeshiva High School, Talmudical Academy, and from there to Yeshiva College, and uh, graduated from that experience, and then switched from that to the Jewish Theological Seminary for uh, fascinating reasons. When I uh, graduated Yeshiva College, it was 1945. And uh, in the New York Times, on the front page, there was an item which said that the prayer book written by Mordecai M. Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionism, was burned by a group of Orthodox rabbis. And uh, that was very, very exciting to hear. And then didn't, didn't know who Mordecai Kaplan was. And I began to read Kaplan. I was very, very impressed. I thought he was right. And, uh, and so I, I decided that uh, my brain and my heart belonged to a, uh, a more liberal uh, background than yeshiva. Though I had great, great affection for yeshiva itself. But theologically, ritually, attitudinally, uh, I needed something that was a little, from my, from my point of view, inclusive and expansive. So I went to the seminary where there was Mordecai Kaplan and later, well, a year later, Abraham Joshua Heschel, a very distinguished faculty and uh, very exciting times. And thereafter, I, I, uh, I went to NYU and I got my master's uh, at New York University, my uh, my principal uh, professor was uh, Sidney Hook, and uh, it was under him that I wrote uh, a master's on Martin Buber. Uh, however good it was, it was the first master's in English on this remarkable figure, Martin Buber. And then I went, uh, I came, when I came to, uh, to the West, I uh, got my uh, degree in theology, doctorate in theology, at the Pacific School of Religion, which is connected to the University of California, 
but this particular Pacific School of Religion was a non-sectarian Christian theological seminary. And I was the only Jew, and at that time, the only, certainly the only rabbi. It was a fascinating experience which, uh, from which I learned a great deal. We switch gears here, and we start talking about the denominations of Judaism. First of all, I love all the denominations. I love them all. Some of my best friends are Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, and also those outside of the school, secular Jews. Uh, in that sense, I'm imbibed, I think, from people like Kaplan, from people like uh, Rabbi Isaac Cook, from uh, people that, thoughtful people, uh, including people like Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig, a kind of embrace of the varieties of Jewish interpretation. And denominations in that respect are very good because they express the uh, vitality, the uh, distinctiveness of, uh, of the Jewish people uh, who uh, have been raised, I think, no matter what the denomination, to ask, to ask questions, to interrogate, to probe. The whole Talmud, the whole Midrash is based on probing and asking and questions. The negative part is when the denominations begin to feel that they are exclusive, that they represent the solitary and uh, uh, monistic truth. This is the way, this defines Judaism, this defines what it means to be a Jew. I think that that is, uh, is where the denominations then become very provincial and parochial. And uh, consciously or not, there's a denigration of the other. So that the, the popular notion is that the, uh, uh, that the uh, Orthodox are crazy, that the Reform are lazy, and the Conservatives are hazy. And uh, this is a caricature that happens if you introduce an apartheid philosophy. And this has been introduced, and one of the things that uh, I bemoan most is the fact that Jewish kids uh, are very uh, ghettoized within their own denominations, so that conservative, reform, orthodox, reconstructionist kids do not pray together, do not play together, go to separate camps, different, different separate schools. There's no contact, and especially with a small people, that is concerned with marrying within, if that is one of the major concerns, this seems to be uh, a, a tragic circumstance. Uh, I, it's very difficult, for example, to pray together with my Orthodox friends. And this is, to my mind, painful and, uh, and tragic. Because um, I can get uh, my Episcopalian friends, my Catholic friends, we have a joint service, we can pray together. That I cannot pray together with the Orthodox, my Orthodox colleagues, is something that ought to be uh, considered. And uh, not only to be moaned, but to realize the limitations of denominationalism. We now turn the discussion to the issue of driving a car on the Sabbath which the conservative movement allows in America. The ruling was made in about 1950. It was one of the greatest moves on the part of very serious conservative rabbis and its law committee.
to introduce a heksher, a permission, for people to drive to the synagogue. Because if you look sociologically at the American Jew, he is not going to be ghettoized into any particular section. He wants to live any place, and there are all kinds of factors, sometimes economic, sometimes social, and sometimes they simply, uh, uh, this is not the way you create community, by putting them into, a, a, into isolating them. Um, the, the notion of driving to the synagogue or driving to the hospital uh, to visit sick people on the Shabbat, I think was a boon and it indicated this wonderful balance of tradition and change. It is certainly not a, uh, it does not encourage going to um, uh, baseball games or movies, etc., etc. But to, uh, to drive to shul, uh, I have no, uh, no question about it that those who feel that uh, it, the, the question really is it, it's sort of beg, it's a begging question. Question you've got to believe in the Sabbath in a particular way. You've got to believe that on the Sabbath there are certain laws which I would assume that most of the Orthodox rabbis um, agree to, which would limit you, uh, putting on lights, uh, playing the radio, things of that sort, and thus clearly driving. So the issue is not driving. It's the question of, is this the kind of Sabbath that you believe uh, American Jews, or not only American Jews, but Jews generally, uh, can accept? It's not for myself. I mean, I uh, put the lights on, I put the radio on, on Shabbat, I answer the telephone. I think that's part of my Sabbath observance. And uh, it's for that reason that you have movements, because I understand very well that my, my grandfather would, uh, could not understand that. But that was my grandfather. But I understand Shabbat differently. I understand it as an opportunity for, to visit with family and for friends, which sometimes amounts to implies you know, travel with a car, it means study, it means joy, it means many things. And I, I am not convinced that inhibiting that kind of freedom is going to increase the character of the Sabbath. And what about kashrut, the Jewish dietary laws? Why keep kosher? Yeah, the question of kashrut is a very important question, and it can be handed it can be handled in various ways. I think most people uh, understand uh, ritual, including kashrut, in terms of jurisdiction, in terms of law. You are not to eat X, Y, and Z. There's no rationale that's normally offered, at least certainly not in the schools that I know or even attended. Uh, the rationale is a very profound one. The very first law of keeping kosher it's in the Bible, where the uh, taking the limb, tearing the limb of a, of a live animal, the sentient creature, is considered to be taboo. And the reason for that was this general principle of tsar bali chayim, which is a, a feeling for the sentient creature. This is wrong. You know that in primitive times, um, there was no refrigeration. You wanted to have some meat for your family or for yourself. 
got a cow, got an animal, cut out a piece of the of the of the flesh of that animal, let the animal uh, scamp away, uh, heal itself, scabs. You had another you had another meal, another meals. Well, this sensibility, this Jewish sensibility of compassion for feeling uh, creatures is, it seems to me, one of the underlying and for me the most persuasive aspect of keeping kosher. Uh, I am very taken by, for example, the vegetarian movement, which uh, has, to my mind, uh, many Jewish roots. We know, for example, that in Genesis, uh, the human beings were told to eat of all of the veg vegetables or the fruits uh, and the, the, uh, the assumption there was that you were not to be carnivorous, you would not be eating uh, meats. And it was only after the flood where God makes a kind of concession to the animalic, carnivoral uh, aspects of, of man and says, okay, you can do it, but, and then you have all these buts which says, uh, make sure that you drain the blood. There's a kind of recognition that ideally, this is not uh, the way one should live. In addition to which, uh, historically, we know that keeping kosher became one of the identifying uh, marks of Jewishness. So that the Greek Syrians, that story which we tell around Hanukkah time, uh, in order to break the national peoplehood will of the people, forced swine down the throat of, of those people. So that became, even for non-religious uh, Jews, a mark of, uh, of pride and of dignity, uh, not to eat uh, pig, etc., etc. Uh, my father, who was not a religious man, uh, understood this, and uh, that would be taboo. And, and the taboo was because of a respect for peoplehood and uh, also the recognition that it somehow rather uh, allows Jews to assemble together so that my grandfather could feel freer to eat in uh, our home because he knew the home was, but, but that, that's part of it. But I do think that this vegetarian thing is, uh, is more interesting than we've made of it. We have a vegetarian group here that meets at Valley Bet Shalom. And uh, when we speak about it, a lot of things that motivate them is health, but a lot of things are ethics. It's interesting I mentioned the fact that uh, uh, originally the, the, uh, in Genesis you have a vegetarian proclivity, but also in the Messianic era, when you speak about the lion and lamb uh, dwelling together, uh, the assumption is, the, 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 the picture is, that it's a herbivorous society, that everybody's going to eat uh, vegetation, because there's something intrinsically uh, repulsive about the taking of the life of a living, feeling creature. I think Maimonides' explanation is very meaningful to me. When he tries to explain the details of Kashrut in the Guide to the Perplexed, he constantly refers to the struggle against paganism, and in particular, Sabianism. Uh, what he's saying is that, for example, in the milk, not cooking the milk, and uh, the kid in the mother's milk, 
is a protest against a Sabian rite, a religious pagan rite, in which they did that. Uh, I think that historically, there's an awful lot of mystery behind it, the rationale originally, whether it could be done, even the question of the interpretation of what it means. Does it really say, uh, you are not to uh, cook a uh, kid in his mother's milk? Is it uh, chalav or is it chalav? Is it milk or is it fat? Uh, because inasmuch as the Torah does not have uh, diacritical marks to all consonants, you could read it various ways. My own feeling is that that is uh, fascinating and interesting, that most important is not the genesis of a law, but what it became historically. And it seems to me, as you've pointed out, uh, that, that honey has been accepted as uh, representation and maybe the very notion of sweet that comes out of something that's not that not sweet is a kind of an augury for uh, what can happen that nothing is is irredeemable that you can make something uh, something pure and noble out of an origin that is less pure and I want to make one other point if you don't mind uh, on this question of uh, you know Jews while they did not uh, eat uh, these prohibited uh, foods, like uh, from 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 animals such as uh, as the pig, it's interesting that in Zoroastrianism, a religion which Jews experienced when they were exiled in in in, in Babylonia, uh, there were two gods: a god of light and a god of darkness and the struggle between both of them, and that the god of darkness was represented by these bad beasts, which you were then, if you were on the good side, kill. Never do you find in Judaism anything against those unkosher animals, other than eating them. But you never go out to say, there's something evil in those animals, kill a pig, or kill a camel, nothing of that. I think that's important. All animals are created by God, and is thus uh, touched by something of the divine hand. So uh, while historically these things develop, um, in, uh, I think there is a, uh, a deeper rationale to Kashrut, and I like to see what did Kashrut become rather than what is the origin of it. This next question deals with the Jewish population, demographics, assimilation, and such. I think whenever you deal with a question of prediction, we have lots to learn from the Jewish tradition. Because the prophet was some sort of a prognosticator. He spoke about the future. But there was always one governing term, one word that informed prediction, and that was if, and everything is conditional, I think Jews can become a very much larger in numbers, uh, which is roughly around 13, 14 million Jews in the world, uh, if they involve themselves more seriously 
in a proactive embrace of many people who are interested in Judaism itself. Uh, I know I've talked to enough uh, demographers and sociologists who say that in various countries, let's say in Africa, in Nigeria, there are many, many people in India who are really interested in becoming Jewish uh, for no other reasons than they recognize that Judaism is a, an old religion, the oldest of all the uh, monotheistic traditions. They appreciate its uh, its common sense, its uh, non-dogmatic sense, its uh, warmth, its family uh, orientation. And uh, I have found it to be very, very peculiar that uh, somehow or other, the notion of reaching out to inquiring uh, unchurched uh, people is not something that becomes an, a national movement, especially in the conservative movement where it is not. We have experimented with that, and it is, to my mind, a revolutionary and eye-opening experience. There, the, the, the Gentiles that I now meet, because we have a number of open sessions, the Gentiles that I now meet are not people who are coming because they want to marry your daughter uh, or your, uh, your sister. They are people who are genuinely searching. And they will go to Baha'i, and they will go to uh, uh, ashrams. They'll go all over because they feel welcome. For whatever reason it is, and it's a deeply felt and widespread notion, they do not feel welcome in the synagogue. And I think that can be remedied so this is where the if comes in. I think we can become a much stronger, and, and the question now is not quantity. The question is quality, because it's, you know, we have a tendency always of quantifying. They'll ask you, you know, how many, how many people uh, does your congregation uh, seat, or somebody said, how many do they sleep? Uh, uh, that's not the important question. The important question is the quality of Jewish life. And this brings me again to the consequence of what we op opened up when we talked about outreach. I have found uh, that with the increase of Jews by choice in our congregation, that the character of the congregation has changed to the good. And the character of Judaism is understood because the, the best test of any religion, to my mind, is how do you deal with the non-Jew? If it's a Christian, how do you deal with a non-Christian? If it's a Muslim, how do you deal with those who are not Muslims? And so one of the things that I'm proud of is that we have always had uh, theologically, religiously, spiritually, uh, an openness to those who want to become Jewish. Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, uh, that's not the way it is experienced. And I am res a recipient of many, many conversations, even with people who have converted to Judaism, having gone to the University of Judaism or wherever, who say that even after the conversion, they are told by Jews, Jews by genes, if you will, native-born Jews, no, you'll never be able to do it 
because, as they will say, in his very crass manner, a shiksa, blaipta shiksa, shiksa is a derisive term for a uh, non-Jewish woman, as a shegitz is an non-Jewish man. Both of those words come from a Hebrew word, shekets, which means vermin. This is not Jewish attitude. So in this outreach, the concern that I have is not demographical. How many Jews will you be able to gain? But to change the character of uh, Judaism itself. And not to change it, but to go back to the original notion of Judaism, which has been forgotten. One of the most incredible things, and I find that Jewish audiences don't know it any more than non-Jewish audiences, is that there is a single verse in the Bible that is the most frequently cited verse. 36 times in the Bible, you shall love the stranger as yourself because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Most of the laws, ethical laws in the Bible, treating the poor, treating the widow, treating the pariah, is based upon that notion. And that is what I think we are discovering. And this congregation, I can tell you, has been rejuvenated since we have embarked upon this active outreach program. And they have learned many things. Many Jews do not know that every single day, when they are supposed to be praying, the uh, Amidah, the silent meditative prayer, which is with the central prayer of the morning, afternoon, and evening, the 13th benediction says, praises God for having, for the Gerei Hatzedek, for the righteous Jews by choice. This is not appreciated. Uh, Jews do not understand that Abraham's father was a pagan. He's the first Jew by choice. So is Sarah. We come from that element, and now we have an opportunity in a free and democratic society, which we did not have in Roman times, to reach out, embrace, and teach those who are interested, those who inquire. We're not going to go out with timbrels and with... uh, uh, the drums and stand at the uh, airports and rope people in. But there are many people, many, many people who are interested. Some who are involved in interfaith marriages and some who are just simply interested in uh, rootedness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add something to that. Uh, the usual approach to this question of uh, outreach and conversion is marriage questions. It is true that one out of every two uh, Jews, generally speaking, uh, marry out of the faith. More out west than back east, but it's, it's become a uh, pervasive, it's an international issue. Uh, and some people approach it by saying we need to have a, we have to replace uh, those Jews who were lost in the Holocaust. We have to replace, because Jews have such a low fertility rate, we've got to make it up. That, to my mind, is a deep disrespect 
for this non-Jewish person. He is not a surrogate. He is not a substitute. Uh, it's a very selfish and very narrow motivation. The reason I'm interested in speaking to him when he comes, the reason we want to have mentors, which we have, many mentors within our, we have a hundred mentors, mea mentors, who are opening up their lives, their homes, uh, to uh, become friends with these people who are inquiring, is because I honestly believe that Judaism has something important to say to these people. And these people who are looking are in the category of Ruth, the woman who is celebrated on the festival of Shavuot, the festival of weeks, and which we, whom we, from whom is descended David the king, from whom is descended the Messiah. Now, it seems to me that we have an opportunity, and we know from historians like Selo Baran that in uh, Roman times, uh, you had easily 10% of the population, pagan population, which were Jewish. And the only reason we stopped proselytizing was that after Constantine and after the other uh, emperors of Rome adopted Christianity as the established religion, they said if you convert a pagan to Judaism, then that Jew would risk capital punishment. Well, that's enough to discourage it. But we're not living in Roman times. We're living in a free, democratic, pluralistic society, and we have to take advantage of it and return to the roots of Judaism, which said you are to be a light unto the nations. And Abraham was told in the very beginning, go out and be a blessing unto all the families of the earth. Mm -hmm.